Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Welcome everyone. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, it's really great to have you here today. We're going to jump into week three of our vision series really quick because I, well, I have a lot of stuff and we don't have a lot of time. And, and we'll just talk about some of the themes around that video. We call this series Just Another Church. The idea is that there are lots of churches and all of them are living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. They are just we're one of many, and, and yet God has given us a specific place to be uh, and perhaps specific things to do that we get to wrestle with. The writer Andy Stanley says this vision is about what could be and should be. When we think about what the church is becoming, we maybe kind of express some of our tensions with how the world is, and, and we long we long for something more than that, and that's some of the heartbeat behind all of that. And it's also like travel. It's like travel in this respect. Sometimes the, the imagining of where you're going to go is the easy part, and then there's the hard work of actually getting there of all of the different ways that travel throws you off your routines is comfortable. We maybe ask questions uh, like this. Will it be worth the wait? Will it be worth the work? Maybe another way of phrasing that is, what will it take to get there? And there for us that call South home is some of the tension because what happens if getting wherever we decide we're going actually takes changing some things that we love, doing things perhaps a little bit differently. We get into patterns and then doing something different can be hard. This is a story that came up with Lewis and Clark, the explorers. When they went out as part of the corpse of discovery, they took boats. Kind of like this one, maybe, I don't know. Some kind of dugout boat. And, uh, and they, they went off and I was corrected in the first service. Apparently, I don't know my American history. Apparently, they didn't go down the Missouri River. They went up the Missouri River and someone felt like it was important that I know that because I kind of pictured it as like this easy, nice sailing trip. And, and, and yeah, apparently, it was a little more difficult, a little more complicated than that. But they went on boats and, and everything went fairly well. There was at least a river to sail or paddle up, and they got where they were going fairly quickly. And then there's this moment where they hit the continental divide, and the question becomes, what do you do with a boat then? We, we all love the Rocky Mountains, right? It's where some of you guys get to go skiing. JD talked in his video about how he likes to have fun, just so you know his brand of fun. He's a little on the edge of fun for some people, but we go and we play in this beautiful playground. We explore the mountains, but we do it in forerunners and with all of these different things, not with boats like Lewis and Clark. And so they get to the Rocky Mountains, and then they have this moment where they assume that they have one mountain to climb, and then when they get down the other side, it's just plain sailing again down to the Pacific. They'll find a nice river, they'll put the canoe back in, and off they'll go together. And of course, they get there and the Rocky Mountains go mile after mile after mile after mile. What do you do with a canoe when you end up in the mountains? You have to change your whole way of doing things. Sometimes vision requires that you do that. To be the community God has called you to be will sometimes require changing things and wrestling with what has been and what could be. So this is where we've gone so far. We are a community living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And we talked about first doing that through environments that feel like coming home. 
creating a space where people on the margins, people that don't belong, can belong. Creating a place where we take time for hospitality, take time for community, that they're not just optional extras and just add-ons, just wrestling with what does it take to be a community that has that kind of feel to it. And, and perhaps what that first one requires is, is it requires a prodigal hospitality. The word prodigal, maybe if you're familiar with church, is maybe one you've heard around the story of the prodigal son. The, the prodigal son, prodigal just means wasteful, excessive, and, and maybe yet an excessive hospitality is actually a good thing in this culture that has kind of lost some of that art form. Second, we talked about experiences that help people encounter Jesus and take next steps, and we wrestled with these three stories around Jesus and watched how every time Jesus encountered some, someone, something changed. There was a significant movement in their life, and, and when we look at the early church, the same principles applied. People experienced Jesus, and there was transformation didn't stay static, and, and longing to be that community where people can experience God in their trauma, in their struggle, in different ways, and know that they are loved by the God of the universe, and that there might be a next thing at some point. And we wrestled with how slow that comes at times, uh, how that isn't always just a, a convenient, easy timing. Sometimes there's questions about why this person and not that person, and yet to be in a community together and say, we are waiting for the God of the universe, we are longing for him, is an important part of South. So maybe there we, we might say that it requires a hunger and thirst for God. We read Psalm 63, where it says, God, you are my God, I, I, I hunger and thirst for you. What does that kind of desire mean for us, and what does it do to us? And then the third one is this, to be a, city, a church, a city and world would miss if it were gone. A church, our city, and world would miss if we were gone. What would happen if the community just disappeared? And perhaps a wrestling point for many churches and for South itself is, well, would anybody notice? Would it matter? Perhaps we're here talking about the corporate version of being good neighbors. So in honor of that, I wore my Mr. Rogers cardigan uh, this morning, and it doesn't have any name in it. So I'm assuming Mr. Rogers actually knitted this himself. That's at least my personal belief. And, and it's crazy hot, so I'll probably take it off soon. But it's, it's that picture of neighboring, right, that we see in Mr. Rogers. We, see, we, we imagine him, and we're like, that's what a good neighbor is. And, and maybe you've had those kind of good neighbors, those people that gather people and those people that are the ones that when they move, people are like, ah, I'm so sad that they've gone. Our street had those people. And unfortunately, we moved into their house when they moved away. We're like the ones that are like, no, you guys came. The other people were, were, were better in some ways, at least. But, but, but the people that lend you their power tools and the people that you can rely on when you need to rely on someone. And, and we're just the people whose kids run all over the street and cause chaos. But, but there's this picture of what it is to be a good neighbor and to be needed and loved in the area. And, and can a church do the same thing is maybe the question here. What does it take for us to be a church that people are so glad is in their neighborhood that makes some of the differences that we tried to tap into in to that video that if we just disappeared and closed up and said, oh, we're kind of tired of this thing, there would almost be the groan of, ah, there's so much stuff about that community that we will miss. What does it take to be that kind of 
community. And I'm going to throw you a couple of really theological sounding words, and don't worry too much about them at the moment, because we're going to wrestle with exactly what those words might be. I would suggest to be that kind of community requires a prophetic imagination. This is a couple of words that I'm deeply passionate about and have been for years. They're not my words, they came from somewhere else, but hopefully they'll make sense as we tap into that. If you hear prophetic and you hear just predicting the future, it's something different to that. It's, it's well, we'll wrestle with that in a moment. But first, let's read a passage from Jesus. So if you have a text, you can turn to Mark, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read from verse 13. And we'll go through it on the screen afterwards, but right now, I told you this was going to get too hard. Okay, I'm still, I'm not as friendly as I was 30 seconds ago, but I'm I'm still fairly friendly. It's going to be okay. Still somewhat Mr. Rogers-like. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, as we wrestle with this text, uh, would you please speak to us, instruct us, guide us, Help us to be the community that you want us to be and the individuals that you want us to be. And we ask you to do that because you are good. Amen. What does it mean to be salt and light? And how does that connect up with this idea of prophetic imagination? And just like with any passage of Jesus, maybe that is the first question that we end up asking. What do you mean, Jesus, by salt and light? The images, they they have maybe some connection in our 21st century brains, but maybe there's some elements we're like, eh, I'm not really sure what he means by that. What does he mean when he says you are the salt of the earth, and just like it does in the 21st century, in the first century, well, salt had a bunch of different applications, a bunch of different things. It could mean salt was something that preserved. When you've got fishermen catching fish in an inland lake, what do you do when there's no freezer? You, you need to make sure it stays good at least for a little while, so you would pack salt around it, you'd send it off uh, to go and be sold in different markets. Uh, salt flavors just like it does today. I, I love steak. And I love filet mignon, but have you ever tried it without salt? It's actually a fairly bland food. There's just something missing. The texture's good. There's all the right things in place, and yet you eat it, and you're like, eh, eh, not that great. And then you add salt, and then that's where the magic happens. Salt brings out the best of a flavor. It does it with steak. It does it with chocolate. It does it with so many things. I should have just had a sermon where we just ate chocolate and salt together, and, and you'd, you'd caught everything I'm talking about. Thirdly, interestingly, salt destroys. What does that mean in the context of this passage? You put salt in the ground where you want stuff to grow. It doesn't grow anymore. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says to us. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, if you would say that you're not someone who's following Jesus, 
the good news for you right now is you don't have to do any of this stuff. This is, Jesus is actually pretty comfortable splitting this up and saying, this is just for people that are following me. You are the salt of the earth. He's okay with that differential, even though we're a little bit uncomfortable with it now. He talked about his group of followers as distinct, as different, uh, as operating in a different way than the rest of the world. And he was very, very comfortable with that. He, he kind of breaks from all of his ethical statements that he's put together in this Sermon of the Mount, and he almost pauses and says, you guys, remember, you're the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth, and we wrestle with all the things that salt might be or mean. And then another metaphor, you are the light of the world. These biblical writers, they love to mix metaphors, and I'm, I'm here for it because I love to do that too. You are the light of the world, you are the light of the world. What does that mean? Just like with salt, it has a few different meanings. Light is, is a guide. It shows you which way to go. Picture a, a lighthouse or anything that functions in that way. It guides you in the right direction. It comforts. There is a joy in light. There's just that idea of flicking the lights on and, and, in, and, and just, just basking in that. My youngest son is in a phase of life where for some reason he loves to turn all the lights off. He's like, can we turn the dark on? So he just goes and he turns every light off. But everyone else in the family's like, no, we don't want to sit in the dark. We want to sit in the light. Try and understand, kid. And then it, and then it empowers too. If you think what it was to live in a society that didn't have electrical light, they couldn't just flick on a switch. Well, what happens when a carpenter like Joseph or even Jesus at one point it has to stop working because the light's gone. Well, a light enables you to continue on. There's all of these different things that we could pull out and say, what do you mean, Jesus? Which one is your focal point? And maybe just the truth is we don't know. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. As he said this, Jesus lived or was working and teaching in a town called Capernaum, and just down the road, there was a town called Sephorus that was literally up on the hill above the town that they were staying with, and, and this was the center of government for the local area, so when they looked up at night, they would see all of the lights above them, and, and they would know exactly what he meant by a city on a hill and how it gave light to the surrounding area. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So for a second time, what does Jesus mean by this? Somewhere his central argument seems to be that there is a benefit to the church in the world, that the church, local and global, it actually makes a difference, that his followers actually make a difference. And we might say there, especially if we have some tensions with the church, we might say how? Has that happened? Is that still working when there's plenty of tensions with the church and people that follow Jesus in general? What, what does he mean? Is this just something we are or is this something we're supposed to do? And, and if it's something we're supposed to do, are we doing it? Is the church still the salt of the earth? Is it still the light of the world? And what does it mean when we see followers of Jesus operating in a way that seems to be the opposite of some of those things, that they don't seem to be operating like light, when they don't seem to be operating like salt. What does that mean? Jesus says, we are salt, and the, the most obvious application would be salt that purifies. That was the major use of the day, and Jesus says that we are light that shines. 
with all of the different applications there. And so when we take this and we read that Jesus said, this is what we are to be if you and I are following Jesus together, how do we live that out in the world around us? How do we live what it is to be salt and light? The writer Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, a community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him, has ceased to follow him. There's an imperativeness to this. It's something that we are called to as as a small community here, as people that live in different neighborhoods all over this area. This is something we are called to. We are here for the world. There was a thought some years ago that that just was captivating. The, The church is the only organization in history that has ever existed that exists primarily for the people that aren't a part of it, for the non-member. That's who we are called to be. We are here for the world with all of the cost of that, all of the, the, the joys of that, all of the ways that that video of JD unpacked some of the tensions with that, some of the ways that's easy and some of the ways that's hard, some of the ways that's joyful and some of the ways it's less joyful. All of the tensions in there, that's what we are called to do for this world. We are here for the world. And so that leads me to another question, at least. What does the world want from the church? Or or what does the world need from the church? And how are those two things the same? And how are they different? And how do any of us actually know what we want or need at any point? For those of you that have raised kids or been around kids or been around grandkids, you know that just from that process, right? Are there not times there's things that you want or at least think you want, and there's things that you need, or at least think you need, and and all of the tensions that go into that. When you look at the Christmas list at Christmas and see the list of needs from a small child, you're kind of like, yeah, I don't know about some of those things, and yet, how do you know? What, What are we called to do for the world, and in the world, and alongside the world, and how can we, as an individual community, recover that giftness that Jesus says we are? Jesus says, you are good, for the world, and I long that for self and for me. And so there's a couple of ways that I'm going to invite us to wrestle with that around these big intellectual-sounding words. I would suggest that to do that well, the church has to be a prophetic church. And again, if you hear prophecy and this old-sounding word, and you hear that it's supposed to be about predicting the future, that's, that's not really what it is. This prophecy, in this sense, is more of a speaking hard and difficult things when they need to be spoken. When we think about what it is to live today, or perhaps in any culture, we look around and we we might ask a question like, is the story working? Is the story working? And, and, And generally, human beings have lived for many years, many centuries by stories. The writer Maya Angelou says this, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And you can probably think of a bunch of different stories that, that we tell ourselves in the West right now. We tell ourselves the story of the American dream, not to say that it's, it's a negative thing, but just simply to say that's a story we tell ourselves. We're going to get promotion, we're going to earn more money, we're going to buy a bigger house, we're going to get life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, all of those different things. There's multiple other stories that we might tell ourselves individually. We might tell ourselves we'll meet someone that we love, we'll, we'll, we'll marry them, we'll have kids, we'll have grandkids, and, and then something might come along that challenges that story. Uh, talking to a doctor, he said that the, the number one thing that causes grief in people around sickness is if they haven't got all of the things that they feel like they 
have a right to expect. People can handle a bad diagnosis when they've had kids after marriage and they've had grandkids and their grandkids have got to a certain point. For the most part, then you start to say, well, I got everything that I could expect to get. But when that diagnosis of sickness challenges that, when they haven't happened, there's, there's a question mark that that raises. It's far more difficult to process. But we have these stories that we come to say, no, this is the story that we're living by. Maybe for you, if you work in the markets, it's the market story. The market will correct itself. It will keep making more money. People will become richer and richer. Life will become better and better. Maybe you're on the other side and you're a socialist and you say, we just need to take the money from the rich people and we'll give it to the poor people. And, and there's all of these different stories, right? There's just these narratives that we tell ourselves to live by. The question is, what if none of them work? What if none of them work? What if all of them are inherently broken and people need to know that they're broken? The writer Bruno Bettelheim in Uses of Enchantment says this, when a world goes to pieces, when inhumanity reigns supreme, man cannot go on with business as usual. And for centuries, part of the church's role has been to say, this isn't how it's supposed to be problem might be that no one is particularly listening anymore and we can wrestle with that another time but some somewhere the church's job has been to speak up to the emptiness of some of that to be honest in its confession of that the um, writer and playwright uh, and film writer um, Woody Allen tells this story two elderly women are at a Catskill mountain resort and one of them says boy the food at this place is really terrible the other one says, yeah, I know, and such small portions. Well, that's essentially how I feel about life, full of loneliness and misery and suffering and unhappiness. And it's all over much too quickly. And it's all over much too quickly. Isn't that like a hole in the story? I can chase after all of the things that I want and maybe not get any of them. And, and yet I still want more of it, all of that emptiness and misery and suffering and unhappiness. There's, there's ways that even the rich and affluent and important experience the, the story that they're trying to live by to be broken. In coding, in computer programming language, especially in the coding language Python, there's something that's called a while true loop. What it means is as long as the answer to the problem is true, it just loops round and round and round again. And there's some of you here that are computer programmers and I'm like at the limits of my knowledge. So I'm like, I'm pushing you a little bit. I know it's like, you're like, this is just as bad as sailing up the Mississippi River or Missouri River or whichever river we were talking about earlier. I can't even remember which river I'm in. But this picture looks something like this. As long as the condition is true, the, the thing loops, it keeps doing the same thing over and over again. You can make a character just essentially keep going in circles on and on again, doing the same thing over and over again. And eventually, something can come in and break the loop. But maybe that's a picture of what life can be like. There's a chasing after a particular story. Perhaps it's wealth, and that will make me happy. And perhaps it's a relationship, and that will make me happy. Or perhaps it's something else that you can put a name on and you know it personally and you chase it and you chase it and you chase it and it becomes a loop or perhaps you've experienced it as a spiral as like it's like no it's getting worse and worse and worse and something has to come in and say no that isn't the story or that isn't 
true. And maybe in that moment, there's a possibility of looping out of that story. Jesus does this for people all the time in the New Testament. There is a story that he's continuing, that he's going round and round, and Jesus comes and he interferes with the story and it becomes something different. I would suggest somewhere, a church that the city and world would miss actually has to do this hard part. A a prophetic church declares that the current story is broken. This isn't the way to live. This isn't what God has for us as people. That is hard and difficult and challenging, especially in a middle-class society where we're like, oh, we don't really talk about religion and we don't like messing with people's beliefs, and yet this seems to have been inherent for the church in the whole of its lifetime. 2,000 years, the church has had to speak these hard things, but what it's also done incredibly is, is this. It's also been an imaginative church as well. Not only has it said this story is broken, it has said here's a better story. Sometimes in the grand scheme of it's the Jesus story, but, but, but sometimes in the practical day-to-day of what that story might mean for us as individuals. Anytime that you see a community, an organization that helps people move from, a diff- from one point of life to another point of life, they're starting to do some of these things, and maybe you can think of all sorts of examples. Our food bank, in the way that it operates, gets to help do that kind of thing. The refugee mission that we talked about, it gets to do that kind of thing. It gets to imagine something different. And that, too, was something that Jesus did all the time. We're inviting people into a different way of thinking, a different way of being. The church can't just do one and the other. It has to. It has to do both. We get to tell a story that might be just a little bit better. We see the way that imagination works with children. There's something about telling a child a story that gives them the belief that there might be a different world out there. It doesn't matter, actually, in that case, whether the story is true or not. The child intuitively comprehends that although these stories are unreal, they are not untrue. There's something about a good fairy tale that's supposed to like capture your imagination and potentially lead you to a different world. When we imagine a different world with people, it actually does something that matters. We get to do that. And doesn't it sound like what these people are doing in this letter, Hebrews? All these people died in faith without ever having received the things they were promised. However, they saw them and welcomed them from afar, and they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now those who say such things show that they are seeking a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, central to Jesus and who he was, was his presence in the earth and his challenge of the way things were. He seemed to suggest to people, no, this isn't how you live. I have a much better way to live. And this works all over the Bible. So we're gonna look at one example, and then I'm gonna ask a question that really infuriates me, and I hope infuriates you, because it speaks deeply to some of my struggle to do this in practice. So where do we see this? We see this in this story, Exodus. This is the central Jewish story, and these people, the children of Israel, have been trapped in a land called Egypt for a few hundred years at this point. They've, they've gone as guests. And, and then they've got stuck there as slaves, 
and life is getting worse and worse and worse, and so they cry out repeatedly to their God, and then there's this moment where God says, I'm gonna send you a deliverer. I'm gonna rescue from the problem. I'm gonna give you a better way to live. I'm gonna imagine a better future for you. All of those things we've talked about. I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, for those of you who know the end of the story, when they get to the land, does it actually flow with milk and honey? It doesn't actually physically flow with milk and honey, but this is a picture of what they can imagine. It's something that they can move towards. God comes into their story and says, I'm gonna invite you into a different future, a better future, a preferred future. And he sends Moses to Pharaoh, who unsurprisingly isn't a fan of this better future. Chapter five, after Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh is used to having his own way. He's, one of his names is, I'm the morning and the evening star. I was here long ago. I'll be here at the end of the story. That story is not changing. And, and if you look in history, any totalitarian regime believes it's going to stay forever. That's just the nature of totalitarian regimes. And so Pharaoh is no different to anybody else who's tried to do something like this. Who is God that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't, do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. In fact... What I'll do is I'll make life worse for Israel. I'm gonna tighten the loop. I'm gonna make sure there's no chance this loop ever, never ends, ever ends. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. This is Aaron and Moses. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. And, and what a brilliant premise, right? Let us just journey off three days out of like the land that we're prisoners in and, 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 and I promise we'll come back. We will we'll come back. And, and Pharaoh's like, yeah, I don't know about that. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Why are you asking for a six day, seven day vacation when you get no vacation time? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy, that is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God, make the work harder for the people so they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Keep them working so they don't believe there is a better story possible. Keep them in the loop. Keep them in the loop that goes round and round forever and ever because think about what this situation costs them. In Egypt, well, there is no way of earning money it's about survival and getting enough money to survive. There is no time because how can you stop working when you're making bricks with no straw? There can be no relationships because there's no time for relationships. There is anger in a continual loop and there is shame as a captive people in a continual group and there is more. But all of these things are just there forever and ever and ever. And when Moses comes and says there's a better story, 
Pharaoh says, I'm going to make sure they stay in this story. There can be no change in Egypt. And even the people aren't convinced there can be a change. In chapter 6, God says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. So this is the tension point in that loop we talked about. Can there be a better way to live? Can there be anything else other than what we've known? I go to work and I do it repeatedly. I hope for this and I hope for that and I buy this and I buy that and I do all of these things and can there be anything different to this? Can there really be a better story than the one that we've been around for a few hundred years at this point? Can this be true? Can it be true that Egypt is a story that is broken and then we enter a wilderness and then there's this promised land which is a better story? Can Moses' idea that prophetically, no, this isn't the way to live and imaginatively, yes, there is a better story, can those things be true? And at this point, the people don't believe it. They need someone to imagine this better story for them. You might say an act of imagination is to believe in the wilderness that that the story you left isn't as good as the story that you'll enter into, that you've left something that was a bad story and a broken story, and there's a new story still to come. It's this moment of tension. Somewhere there is this prophetic church that speaks truth to a society and says, no, this isn't the way that we're made to live. But it has to be able to do the imagination part and says, there is a better way to live. There is something more than this world offers. There is something else to do. What do you do with a better story or a broken story? Theoretically, you offer a better one. And this is my big tension. And this is my big question. Because I'm not sure that for the most of the time, we actually live in a better story. I think we say that we do. I think we have some language that supports it. I think we would say things like, well, I, I go to church on a Sunday morning, or I believe in Jesus around this or that. But, but I actually question a lot of the time when I look at my life and I look at my neighbor's life, whether there's much difference. And I actually look at the church as an organization and a business down the road, and I wonder, is there much difference? And maybe there doesn't have to be, but I deeply wonder if there should be. I deeply wonder if there should be. And I think the hard wrestling for me is I still at times very much feel like a person of Egypt, chasing all the same things that everybody else is chasing. Now, that's not a problem for them because they're not claiming to live a better story but I am claiming to live a better story. And so it makes me wonder, is there something that that I'm maybe missing and something that I'm supposed to be chasing after and longing for South to chase over, if I really want people to believe the story that I'm telling is better? Because I think that's part of the conundrum, right? There's all sorts of people that would desperately own, Woody Allen included, to crying out for, this This is miserable. This isn't any kind of way to live. And yet, for some reason, I want it to just keep going. It's too short. I, I, I'm longing, essentially, is what he's saying, for a better story. But where does he see it? 
And I wonder if maybe that's the salt and light thing. I wonder if when Jesus says you're supposed to be salt and light, he says, no, you're supposed to, you're supposed to offer a better story. You're, you're supposed to shine a better story. And I have to ask so often, do I? And in what ways do I? It's really easy to claim to be a Jesus people and still be an Egypt people, I think is what I'm saying. And you see that in the story. Watch what happens two days Two days after this group of people leave Egypt, two days after they're rescued for, through all these plagues, this is what they say. Exodus 16, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this assembly to death. What happens is they get out of the loop and they've been out for two days, and they're like, take us back to the loop. The loop was amazing. The loop had pots of meat. The loop was the, the good life. They've stepped into the wilderness, and they're longing already to go back. And, and, and that sounds at times like, like I am, or at least I feel like I am, and, and all of those different wrestlings. Maybe this is part of the problem. Alan Hirsch in his book, Forgotten Ways, says this, when you combine safety and security, comfort and convenience, you have something antithetical to the gospel of Jesus. There's a lot of words there. Just take a moment to process them. When you have safety and security, comfort and convenience, you have something antithetical to the gospel of Jesus. When you have middle-class living is maybe what he would even say, certainly in the West in the 20 first century. I experience all of those things. I, it, make, it reflects really badly on me when I tell people that my back door broke, the lock broke, and it took me three months to fix it. So comfortable was I in my middle-class security in Highlands Ranch in 2021. The, the door just didn't lock. And I, I wasn't worried at all. Now, maybe some of you are like, you should have been deeply worried, but I personally felt that comfort and, and convenience and that safety and security so much that, well, why, why would I need anything else? And yet, that's not what the first century followers of Jesus experienced. Every single one of them, when Jesus dies and is raised again, has this option, this possibility. I can go back to my old life. I can go back to the loop. Peter can go back to his boat. James and John can go back to their boat, these famous names of people. They, Matthew can go back to his tax booth, and yet, and yet they don't because it seems what they've experienced, and Jesus says, I can never be the same again. The loop is broken, and there is no going back. I've seen this promised land, and I, I can only limp or move towards it in whatever way I can. I suspect in the 21st century, if we're honest, there are lots of ways that we are still locked in the loop. We're still locked in the loop of the, the old story. We're just going to add more stuff. It, it, it's maybe in, in another way of saying it is the, is the Facebook scrolling thing. Like, you know how the marketplace with all the stuff you want to buy never ends. The list just keeps going, right? It doesn't, doesn't have a bottom. doesn't have, there's no more stuff to buy. There is always more to the loop. It just goes round and round. How, how do we break that loop? And maybe we need to parlay our emotions and our thinking to be able to ever think about that, and we need to, to experience the God of the universe in that to actually help us ever break this crazy loop that we end up in that seems indicative or universal. 
to human beings. And so here's a practice I'd love to offer you this week. It's called the daily examine, and maybe it's something that nudges us to think about this. It's a traditional Ignatian practice, and what you do is, as you pray in the evening, you become aware of God's presence. That's central. And then you get to review the day you have been given with gratitude. Pay attention to how you felt at different points. And then you choose one feature of the day, and you pray from that. One thing that stands out to you, and then you look to tomorrow. But I'd love to offer you this with a slight twist. We're just going to nudge or change slightly number four. And I'm going to ask you not to pray out of just something, some feature of the day. I'm going to suggest together we pray one, about one loop that we have re-entered. And consider that. Where have you and I re-entered the Egypt loop? Where has it become simply about having enough to survive? Where has it come about believing that a particular relationship will give us all of the answers that we think we need? Where have we entered into the thinking that more stuff will give us the things that we want? Where have we entered into the idea that there's a substance that can provide us with what we need? Where have we entered that endless loop that says this is what life is about? And how might we, in partnering with the God of the universe, say what might tomorrow look like? That's the practical to that, but there's an emotional to that that I hope captures where you feel God might be calling you. This is a prayer by Sir Francis Drake that speaks to me about my tensions with church and deeply with myself. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of the land we shall find the stars. We shall find the stars. I don't know about you personally and about your feelings of church as a community, but that to me just taps into my longing. God, please don't let us just sail so close to the shore because it's safer and it's easier. Let us pursue into whatever you might have for us, even when that costs and comes at a risk. Even when we have those moments of like, what am I doing here? When, when we lived in Michigan, we got to go and stay at a place called Crystal Lake. It's this beautiful lake up in northern Michigan. And, and the first 100 yards or so, uh, it never gets deeper than about 12 feet. You can see every ripple on every rock, and it's stunning. And then about 100 feet from the shore, it drops to about 200 feet deep, just cliff edge, just blue. And you look out from the shore, and you see light blue, and then you see the blue, the dark blue. And so I took a paddleboard out there, and as I got towards the edge, I started to feel this nervousness arise in me, and, and I swim pretty, swim pretty well, and I'm on a paddleboard, like I'm on a thing that inherently floats, and I know it's not the ocean, so I know there's nothing down there, and I grew up surfing where I never knew how deep I was, and, and yet I'm looking at this thing, I'm like, I'm so nervous to cross into the blue. And yet I, I looked at it and I said, I can't go back without going over there. There's no way I'm going back to the shore 
and, and saying I wouldn't go there, I wouldn't do this. So I made myself pass into the blue, and that seems to be what Francis Drake is getting at, where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of the land, we shall find the stars. We shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. That seems to me to be a community the city and world would miss if it were gone. One that will speak to the way that the story is broken, but passionately live out and share a better story with new possibilities that will risk everything, will risk the ship itself to sail where God has called it, and will do that for the world that he has placed it in. It's time for us to live a better story. Let's pray. God, thank you for this church, this community that you've placed in location in Littleton for whatever reason, for your purposes. For whatever reason, every single one of us finds us sitting here today, maybe on the fringe, maybe uncertain about our future. Maybe we've been here for longer than we can remember. This is your community. I've spoken some words Would you remove the ones from people's minds that are just mine? And would you keep us with what's yours? Would you challenge us to be the community that you want us to be for this city that you love? Because Littleton belongs to you and this world belongs to you. God, would you use us in this place? Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.